to the Peds Ortho podcast. This is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I am thrilled to say that we have uh, one of the titans in our field joining us tonight uh, from Baltimore, Dr. Paul Sponseller from Johns Hopkins. So we're thrilled to have him with us, and uh, we'll let the uh, other co-hosts introduce ourselves, and we'll move forward with the program tonight. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. This is Josh Holt from the University of Iowa. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt University. So, Dr. Sponseller, uh, we like to start off with some more fun questions before we move into the uh, the work side of things. So, question for you. Uh, if you could put any case on your surgery board for, for first case tomorrow, any case ever, what's your favorite surgery? What would you pick? Gosh, there are so many. I come from the old school, and so I do not only spines, but hips and feet and trauma. Uh, I really like trauma because it's unquestionably necessary to put the kids together. So, you know, doing uh, ephemeral rotting is probably about as satisfying as you can get, either rigid nailing or flexible nailing. Uh, But I guess in terms of overall satisfaction, uh, probably either a neuromuscular scoliosis or a PAO are probably the the most uh, satisfying and fun cases. But probably in terms of overall non-surgical satisfaction, what I really like most is non-surgery corrections like metacasting, where you can take a kid that's obviously crooked and make him straight with no scar whatsoever. Um, And that's probably really even more satisfying than any of those things. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the most impressive things we do and most satisfying things we do are often non-operative. So that's great. Thank you. You're going to have a busy day tomorrow. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then since we're in the in the summer season, uh, what is your ideal summer vacation? My ideal summer vacation is either road bike touring trip or just spending a week in the beach. Awesome. Just relaxing with the book and family. Sounds pretty lovely either way. Great. All right. Well, um, so tonight we're going to talk about two papers uh, recently out of JPO with the common thread of sacral alar iliac fixation. And so I would love to just get uh, the master of the technique to describe a little bit for our, our listeners, you know, what is your ideal technique for SAI fixation and what are the indications that you use at, at baseline? Whenever possible, I like to do spine surgery without pelvic fixation, but there are some times when that just doesn't work out, and it's good to anticipate that because as Lindsay Andrus and Dave Skaggs have shown, if you don't get it right, it's like another big surgery just to fix the pelvic obliquity that relates. So for neuromuscular patients without good pelvic balance, with pelvic obliquity more than about 15 to 16 degrees preoperatively, if you fuse them, you're almost certain to need to go down to the pelvis if you want a good anatomic result. And also for some genetic conditions like Marfan syndrome, you know, they have adequate balance, but their bone stock and tissue stability just isn't good. And if they have a very dysplastic lumbosacral region with poor thin pedicles and lamina and tilting of L4 and L5, many times 
you need to go down to the pelvis just to get a permanent result with those too. And so that's about probably 5 to 10% of Marfan patients. And the same thing goes for a lot of other syndromes as well. So try to not fuse to the pelvis whenever you can, but you need to recognize when there's no other way. Excellent. Thank you. So the first paper we're going to talk about is uh, the paper that describes 10-year follow-up of SAI fixation. And since this is a relatively new technique, it is great to see some of these longer-term outcomes coming across. So your paper looked at 97 patients, uh, average of 11 years of follow-up. And a couple of really great points, I think. Uh, First of all, the the pelvic obliquity correction was maintained from the six-week post-op to their ultimate follow-up. So I think that really proves that this is a a lasting technique and really a low complication rate, 4%, which is fantastic. So talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in these patients that are coming back. What were your expectations, you know, when you first adopted this technique? Did you expect a higher complication rate? Uh, You know, how do you feel now that we're 10, 15, 20 years down the road on this? That's a great question, Julia. Um, When I was a resident, there were other methods of pelvic fixation, including Galveston rods and then unit rods. And they were pretty good because they really gave you a good alignment, but they would often loosen and you get these halo uh, windshield wiper effects on the limbs of the, of the Galveston rod where it goes into the ilium or the unit rod. And I thought maybe that was inevitable. Whenever you span the SI joint, it was going to windshield wiper like that. But in fact, it isn't necessary. Soon after that, people moved to having modular anchors like iliac screws with a connector and uh, those were beefier, but the connector would often break or it would be prominent or it would loosen and just disengage. So when we started SAI fixation, the goal was to bury it deeper, right in line with the other pedicle screws that are craniops for that. So under the muscle layer and you don't have to dissect out laterally. And also um, it kind of ties the pelvis and SI joint together because you're spanning them anyway. And what we kind of surprisingly found was that the more you fill that pelvic channel, the less likely it is to display that windshield wipering or loosening, uh, loosency, which in turn represents loosening, uh, and therefore to not be a source of pain. So with most of our SAIs that come back, we usually don't see any lucency, uh, or if we do, it's rather small. In the ones where we do see lucency, it is sometimes symptomatic. Um, when patients are picked up, removed, if there's a lot of lucency, a lot of haloing, that may be a, a source of pain. So we try to make it as stable and as uh, osteointegrated as possible. Great. And that actually kind of leads into the second paper really nicely, which uh, looked at, you know, the challenges of pelvic osteotomy in patients that had had previous SAI fixation. So, in general, as you mentioned in your paper, a lot of patients um, with neuromuscular disorders are going to d- demonstrate their pelvic pathology prior to needing the spine fixed, and so this isn't necessarily always going to be a problem. But in those patients who have had SAI fixation, as you described, you know that optimal technique has a big fill of that area, really good osteointegration. You know, great question comes up of does that interfere with the pelvic osteotomy? So I think this was a really important paper. And one of the primary findings that you had was that screws that were less than 1.87 centimeters from the acetabulum uh, did complicate the osteotomy. So just 
tell me a little bit about, obviously, this is a subset of the patients that you treat. How do you address this now that you have this data going forward? You know, is this going to change how you do your SII fixation in patients that haven't had their hips worked on yet? How would you, how do you think this should change people's practice? Sure, thanks. The age-old question is, you know, which should you do first, the scoli or the hip? And I think the answer is whichever is most advanced at the time. And, you know, most of the time it's the hip, but sometimes it's the spine. And if the spine gets fixed first and then you have to do the hip, that's where this problem comes. Hopefully this article will kind of give people a little bit more sensitivity to when the hip looks like it might be unstable. And you might want to cheat with your screws just a little bit shorter. Normally, I like to make my screws as long as possible because when they fill up that kind of rounded portion of the ilium and it starts to turn forward, that's where you get the good interference fit with the screw. Uh, But if you try to be too greedy and make too long of a screw, then this problem of difficult pelvic osteotomy can come up. So try to anticipate it and make the screws a little bit short if you see a problem possibly happening. Uh, But if you are faced with doing a pelvic osteotomy and the SAI screw is already there, and especially if it's too close, uh, then I think they're not too close, but if it's close, uh, there are things that you, you know, need to anticipate. And I do like to do Chiari's for some of the more salvage construct. And what this made me realize is how when you're doing a Chiari, your both halves are moving in opposite direction. Not only do you push the lower acetabular portion in, but you move the superior portion that's covering the capsule out in a normal situation. So really both sides are moving. And when I try to do a Chiari with an SAI screw, it's a ton harder because you can't really move that upper ilium out and you can only force the lower one in. So you have to really work harder uh, to mobilize that. Sometimes I will even do a pubic osteotomy to mobilize it a little bit more. Um, And you have to really work harder to get the uh, acetabular or lower part displaced inward. Conversely, if you're doing something plastic like a Dega osteotomy, you have to try to localize where this screw is and make your cut as close to that as possible so you have some real estate on both sides of it. But the silver lining is sometimes the SEI screw does provide a really nice cranial foundation for levering your Dega osteotomy down. And so you can use that a little bit to your advantage. Fantastic. Yeah, those are those are great tips. And I would encourage all of our listeners to check out the paper because it has some really fantastic figures in it that may help you if you're in this situation. Um, so co-hosts, any questions for Dr. Sponseller on this topic? Yeah, this is Josh. Dr. Sponseller, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Two questions for you. You put some pretty big screws in. Tell us... Uh, how you decide how big you can go. And then the second part of that is how do you put your S2A or SAI screws in? Are you making a a little fascial window down the inner table to see down? Are you using mostly using fluoro? Are you using navigation? Are you using patient specific guides? Explain to us how you, how you actually place them. All those are really good ways to do it. Probably navigation is going to be the way of the future but I'm, I'm kind of a dinosaur and learned how to do it before we had that option. But it can be really challenging in patients who grew up with an asymmetric pelvic development and have muscle forces that are pulling outward on one side and pushing in on the other side. So you often have a windswept pelvis in a CP patient 
or especially an SMA patient, those can be really challenging pelvis to instrument because they're not standard anatomic shapes. I, was, I still do it with fluoro and feel. I make my starting point just at the lateral side of that first foramen, and I feel my way across the SI joint and then uh, feel the ilium. If I can't get it easily, then I will often use an awl with a slight curve on it and be able to feel the bone that way. And so far, I've always been able to do it. But if I had experience with navigation and that were part of my normal workflow, I think that would be a great salvage in such situations. And also, 3D printed guides have been uh, developed for this as well. And uh, I haven't used those, but it sounds like also a good solution. Um, in a standard developing pelvis, it's pretty easy. You just have to kind of accommodate the normal 45 degree downward tilt of the ilium and feel your way across that large cancellous channel. I like to use about a nine or sometimes even a 10 millimeter diameter screw. And usually it's somewhere between 60 and 90 millimeters in length from the bony surface to you know the tip of the screw. And, and do you do any extra imaging preoperatively um, to try and determine the size of that channel or length of the screw, or is it mostly an intraoperative decision? For me, it's mostly an intraoperative decision. Great. Dr. Sponsor, it's Craig Lauer. Um, I had a question for you about, it sounds like very few complications with S2AI screws in this neuromuscular or mostly neuromuscular group. Do you have experience with it in, let's say, like high-grade spondies um, and using it for better pelvic fixation there in a otherwise idiopathic group? And in those sorts of cases, do you ever take them out or notice pelvic pain as a result of that? Yes, for the very high-grade spondies, like grade four or five, I think that is a good salvage because otherwise you're putting a ton of faith on your S1 screws and it doesn't always hold up. Um, in fact, yesterday we did a spondyloptosis case in a, an eight-year-old patient and I used SAI screws as my bottom fixation and I do plan to take them out. So I put screws in S1 and then SAI screws and then you know, either all four or five or whatever you're going to do proximal to, to deal with the case. For lower grade slips, grade twos and threes, I will usually try to just use S1 screws and then S2 screws that don't go into the ilium, that just go out to the SI joint but not across it and just kind of sit within the lower part of the ala. There are a couple of descriptions, either pointing downward or pointing back upward, just so you're going laterally and getting a different vector of resistance. Uh, I never like to depend just on, on S1, but I usually use S2s for the smaller slips and SAIs for the bigger slips. But realizing that these patients will have growth ahead of them, especially females may have childbearing potential or just anybody may want to have a normal SI joint in the future, I do recommend coming back You know, once the fusion is solid and then just replacing those with uh, smaller screws that go into just S2 or maybe just taking that bottom part altogether. I will also add that high-grade slips, apart from getting the mechanical fixation, they will often deform through the S1-S2 segment because the S1-S2 segment is not solid bone at that point. It's almost like a symphysis. And so if you have a big slip and you're putting a ton of force across the L5-S1 joint, but S1-S2 is immature, they will often deform and kyphose through that. And uh, I've seen a few cases and seen other people report a few cases. So that's 
a good tip to be aware of in a high grade spondy in a prepubertal kid. Um, make sure you fix across the S1, S2 joint in some fashion. That's fascinating. The decision to remove, you mentioned kind of these theoretical future things. I'm wondering, did you see, have you seen any complications from that that have informed that? Or is it always something you had planned on doing because of those theoretical issues going forward? Yeah, mostly the latter. But um, knowing how much you need to move your symphysis, especially for, for childbirth, and especially going back to that other experience of doing Chiari's and seeing how much different it feels to do a Chiari with an SAI screw in place versus a normal Chiari, that SI joint does move a bit. And if it's rigidly fixed, it's a whole different ball of wax. So I do respect that. And I, it's a theoretical point. I haven't seen a patient who was treated otherwise and regretted it, but I'm pretty sure it's, I'm pretty sure it's a good idea. Perfect. Thank you. And it, just back to the sort of standard neuromuscular fusions down to the pelvis, are you usually doing just the SAI screw uh, as the uh, sole pelvic fixation or also an S1 screw for some extra support? Yeah, S1 and SAI, and I usually skip L5 because it just makes the construct a little smoother, and I go to L4 and then above. I'm not sure how much S1 really adds, but in some cases it does. Some of these kids have pretty soft bone, and your SAI anchor is much more powerful for correcting pelvic ubiquity. And you can really crank on that to push the pelvis down or push it up to get that last 5 to 10 degrees of pelvic ubiquity correction, or hold it at least. Great. Carter, I'm guessing with you, does that mean that you're skipping S1 or you're tempted to in some way? I'll speak for myself and say that I'm skipping S1 more because that start point seems to be so much more lateral. I don't know if it's the youth of these kids, but to get around the the canal, it seems like you've got to start way lateral. It's not, it doesn't often line up with my other anchors. I um, have been tempted to skip it. I was skipping it early on, and then I had a patient where the connection between the SAI screw and the rod failed on both sides. It wasn't just a neuromuscular scoli patient. It was a paraplegic patient who was pretty big, moving around in a wheelchair, probably putting a lot of stress um, on that junction. But I've started doing the S1 screw in everyone since then, even if that may be overkill in some of these patients. Dr. Sponsor, do you do anything different in paraplegic patients who may be you know, upright, putting more stress on the construct? No, I do it the same, but I, I agree there's kind of the worst case scenario because they're big, robust, and they're Charcot-like setups, really. And I guess I would also add that I will sometimes do a, an iliolumbar fusion. So not only just fusing the sacral ala to the lumbar spine, but packing bone on the undersurface of the ilium too. So you're getting that whole, that whole uh, triangle filled with bone. And just Great a point. technical surgical pearl, do you use closed-headed tulips for your S2A screws or open or what sort of um, um, screws do you use for that? I use open because it, I think it makes the eventual alignment just easier to set up. And in the rare cases where you want to go from the top down, then you can put those in last with the open uh, anchors. Well, thank you. That was an incredible amount of wisdom packed into a, a very short amount of time. So... I hope it's wisdom. It works for me anyway. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, so we'll move on to kind of the next section of our talk today. Uh, Craig, do you want to update us on a couple podcast uh, business details? Ooh, some business details. Yeah, my tidbit section is back. Uh, there are a few comments that I just wanted to highlight, uh, mostly because I enjoy getting the comments and I haven't shared them with you all. 
But uh, Derek Kelly uh, emailed and said that he's a regular and enjoys the podcast. Uh, Derek Kelly from Memphis. He encouraged us to do an IPOS episode because he's faculty there regularly. And um, I had the pleasure of telling him that we are planning on being there at IPOS. And uh, planning is in the works. But if anyone listens and uh, wants to meet us there, um, we're looking forward to that. Sukin Shah made a comment about the annual meeting episodes. Uh, He was there at the meeting, but still listened and thought that they were a nice synopsis of the content and that several of the interviews from sessions where he missed made him go back and listen to the virtual sessions. And then Dan Westacott from the UK, I think I challenged the group to comment about uh, their thoughts on the risks and benefits of avoiding antibiotics and supraconal humerus fractures. And he said to maybe take a little bit of a longer view, and the next time I'm washing out a multifocal MRSA osteoarticular infection, um, I should be thinking about conserving antibiotics and being a better steward. So I appreciate that comment, Dan. And then the last thing is just that uh, we'll check today, and we're at 48,000 downloads. Um, so we're closing in on 50,000, which seems like it should be a milestone of some sort. Um, and so just thanks to all the listeners and sponsors for their interest and support. And as always, reach out to us with any comments, um, and we want to make this all about the POSNA listenership and um, whatever you guys think we can do to, to make it better, let us know. Great. Thanks, Craig. Uh, Carter, I will let you lead us off for the controversies section. All right, perfect. Um, we need a, a fancy name for this as our next step before the lightning round, maybe uh, maybe stirring the pot. But Dr. Sponseller, we're going to throw out a bunch of controversies, mostly around spine surgery. And um, we fully acknowledge that there are no right or wrong answers. So with that being said, we want you to feel no pressure to to hedge and tell us what you think is the right answer. So we'll uh, try to hold your toes to the fire as much as we can, just based on your intuition or interpretation of the literature experience so far. So um, to start off with sort of maybe the controversy of controversies, vertebral body tethering. In 15 years, do you think we will be doing more, less, or the same amount of anterior vertebral body tethers? That's a great question. Hard to predict the future. Seems like it's here to stay. It is sobering when you hear people like Amr Samdani and his colleagues say they think that maybe thoracic BBTs are overdone and maybe we should focus on the thoracolumbar and lumbar. So that may speak to a little bit of lessening of the trend. On the other hand, I think more and more people, once they see the results, and we can predict it with predictive analytics, you know, who should be tethered, what age, what curve. So it's going to have a lower revision rate. More and more people will be uh, comfortable with the, uh, with the idea of tethering. So um, I think that in that case, that would lead to an uptick in the usage. Perfect. All right. And then for AIS, who should be getting Pontes, if anyone? I think Pontes do make a difference especially in restoring the sagittal contour. And generally, any curve over, say, 65 or 70, I can tell a difference uh, when I've done it with those. So I think the bigger curves, uh, and also the people with too much lordosis, uh, focal curves, it does add something. Of course, you have to be safe with it and be reasonably uh, cautious and judicious. Uh, but I think that it's a useful adjunct that should continue to be in people's armamentarium. Great. For idiopathic cases, when do you start bracing? What cob angle do you use? I'm a fan of bracing. I think it works in many cases. It's highly patient-dependent and orthotist-dependent. Uh, I usually use kind of standard indications, SRS brace criteria, 
back from the days of Steve Richards, you know, 20, 25 degrees and above in patients who are not too mature. I'm not averse to starting kind of at lower angles. I think you get the best results when the curves are not as bad. So between 25, 20 and 25 is kind of a good high yield patient to do it in and somebody who understands and is willing to, to kind of put the work in. And then Risser or Sanders for your bracing decisions? Uh, I try to get both. I get Risser almost, you know, pretty much all the time whenever possible. Uh, but I also order bone age if I'm concerned. And we also try to use what's called the thumb ossification index or TOSI by putting the thumbs in the field with, with the hands up in the um, EOS machine so you can see the thumb axis and get a confirmation there. Um, nice. So that's one way to uh, to get both pieces of information. All things being equal, full daytime, 23-plus hour bracing or nighttime bending bracing? I think it's been pretty well shown that more is better and nighttime braces really don't do as well. And probably the only real use for nighttime bracing is modest single curve. So like uh, thoracolumbar lumbar curves of mid-30s or so are probably going to be helped by nighttime bracing. But otherwise, it's just, I think, a, you know, a bow to convenience and uh, not as effective. In general, full-time bracing is my goal. But we all know that even patients who are really motivated and think they're doing 23 hours, when you measure it, they're only doing maybe 18, 19, 16, 17, something like that. So everybody over overestimates how much they're wearing it. So I try to shoot high and hopefully get reasonable. And what Sanders is too high to brace? Do you do a four, a five? That's where my thinking reverts more to Rister. I'm more comfortable making that decision on the basis of Rister scores, zero, one, or two, which would equate to probably a four or a five in the standard system. And then are you bracing all the way until they're a Rister five and uh, it's closed? Yes. I do, and sometimes that takes a long time to get that final bit of maturity. But by that time, you can tell who's an adherent, and they will usually work with you, and they want to get a good result too. Especially if they started out with a big curve in the high 30s or low 40s, um, you do need to really keep it going until they're uh, as mature and set as possible, I think. And then in early-onset scoliosis, when you are casting... There's all sorts of different philosophies about when to switch to uh, magnetically controlled growing rods or whatever your favorite implant is. What's the correct answer for when to switch? It seems to be pretty rare that the casted patients have to go that way. Usually the ones that need surgery are the ones who came in without an appropriate attempt at casting or bracing. But if you do have a failure of casting, I usually try to keep it going until age seven or so, because then you can get another four or five years of extension before they stiffen and have to either stop or or fuse and i don't always fuse everybody because if they're uh for instance with traditional growing rods if they stiffen and they're in good alignment you could just leave that construct in but for the specific answer to your question i would say try to postpone until age six or seven or at the earliest if you can and then you already hinted at my uh second to last question um, whether you leave these rods in or automatically switch them all to definitive fusions? Yeah, the, the manufacturer of the magic rods, Nuvasiv, has a product label saying that they are intended to be 
left in for, I think, no more than two years and to be, you know, taken out or not left in permanently. But of course, we know that physician discretion is the ultimate deciding factor. And there are some patients who are just too fragile to casually recommend surgery. You may have had the same experience, but I can think of in the old days, a patient with traditional growing rods who had SMA, uh, we did like a 30-minute lengthening, and she was in the hospital for three weeks just getting her pulmonary function back to baseline. So for those patients, I'm very cautious, and I will, you know, disclose all the recommendations to them, but be very willing to just leave the rods in if they're in good alignment and they're not broken and, and they're comfortable that works okay too. I'm not supposed to espouse that, but we as physicians can make what we think is the best recommendation for our patients' overall well-being, and that's sometimes what I say. Great. And my last question, you mentioned a good beach trip with a book earlier. If any of our listeners are looking for a good book recommendation, there's lots of people out there that would tell them different things, but what is the correct answer for what they should be uh, picking up to read? Well, I like um, history a lot, so I have read a lot of history books, and uh, the one I read twice is the classic Hamilton book, which you may have seen on stage as well. But the one that's most fascinating to me was a book that talked about the relationship between between Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was called Franklin and Winston, and it talked about their own personal friendship, uh, which was cultivated over the years, and how it influenced and was influenced by major national forces. It's really nuanced, and I think it was a great window into two people who were iconic and also a period in time which we hope will never live through again. So I would pick that one up as well. And then I recently just bought the book by Henry Kissinger called Leadership that just came out, and he explores more modern leaders that he has worked with in his statesman's role, uh, including Anwar Sadat, Margaret Thatcher, Nixon, and the whole nine yards. So that's another good one. Perfect. Thank you. Julia, back over to you. Great. Thank you. So we're going to move on to the next section, which is our lightning round. So we've got five articles picked out uh, that are recent publications from a variety of journals. And we'll do kind of a, a quick review of those in question format. So whoever wants to go first, go ahead and take it. All right, I'll change not, the change. Not the everyone at once, okay? Bit. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go to um, infection. And Dr. Sponsiller mentioned he likes taking care of trauma. I don't know that infection counts as trauma, but um, it's the next best thing. So, this is a study out of Arizona entitled "The Modified Coker Criteria for Septic Hip." Does it apply to the knee? So, my co-hosts will ask you first, and Dr. Sponsiller, I'll get your thoughts. A does the Coker criteria apply to the knee? And B, if you had to pick two of the five modified criteria, which two would most highly correlate with septic knee? Carter, what do you think? So I think it would loosely correlate and not be perfect, which is what I think you suggested with the last part, that some of them correlate. I would think CRP and uh, uh, probably fever would correlate very well. Same answer, yeah. CRP and fever. Yeah, I, I think that whenever you test criteria on another population, it's not going to correlate as well. Uh, and in fact, uh, Matthew Molesky looked at that same kind of concept in knee uh, presentations. It highly depends on whether your population is endemic for Lyme disease or not, because knee is your 
probably single biggest target joint for that. But I, I think it probably informs but doesn't really predict very well whether the patient has a septic knee. And uh, of the COCA criteria, I think that CRP and, uh, and weight-bearing are probably the uh, most useful for me. That we can end the show now. So that's exactly what was found. So the other three of you were wrong. Um, Dr. Sponseller was correct. So what they showed is that um, the Coker criteria, if you have five out of five, they essentially confirmed prior reports that it's 100% selective and specific for septic hip. However, only inability to bear weight and elevated CRP were statistically significant for predictive of septic knee versus some of the other knee pathology. I've got a follow-up question, Dr. Sponseller. Are you a believer that transient synovitis of the knee exists, or is that a hip condition that just gets sort of uh, projected onto the knee? I think it, it exists, but very, very rarely. And uh, even true transient synovitis is extremely variable. Sometimes it recurs. Sometimes it takes days and days to get better. So it's kind of an idealized scenario, but even in the hip, each case can be a little taxing. Is anyone here ever not aspirating or ever ever just not going to aspirate a non-traumatic knee effusion? I mean, it's a pretty accessible joint. It's not like making a decision about a hip. If you have very few criteria, I think you're going to have a suspicion and you probably need to rule it out with an aspirate. I never found that the criteria for the knee were quite as needed. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. It's easier to get to. So it's it's so much less invasive, time-consuming, everything. You might as well get an answer. Yeah, and what I tell residents too is the knee is such a more superficial joint. You can see an effusion, you can feel a warmth, you can see a, a, a visible change as a hip. You can't see or feel or objectively assess any of those things. So I think the knee is a is a different joint, and there's a different criteria. I think this didn't confirm that by any means, but certainly suggests that um, going through the five modified Coker criteria when you're thinking about a knee isn't necessarily the right way to approach it. I can do this one should be pretty quick. Hereditary Nate. Oh, let me ask the question first. <laughs> Just as a prelude there, obviously, we all think that there is some uh, genetic component to development of spinal deformities. Um, but how strong is it? I think I'm most familiar with the twin studies or these kind of ask the parent if they've had it, but you don't have a lot of proof sort of thing. So this study took uh, over 600,000 adolescents from Israel uh, who all have pretty much impeccable records from the mandatory military involvement, uh, and their parents did as well. And so they have pretty reliable data on inheritance. So my question for you is, how big of a deal is it to have a parent with spinal deformity? Uh, how much does it increase your odds? So does it double your odds, odds ratio of two, triple your odds, uh, add it times six? You know, what What is the increase? Carter, just a... A number. It could and be one. Just, could be. This is just all comers. We're lumping in kyphosis, scoliosis, everything. This this did lump numbers. in AIS over twenty and kyphosis over forty five because that's what they said as their criteria for flagging that condition. I mean, I think more so than it, kyphosis, it is but I think it's still going to be very, very small, less than doubling. You know, one point two or something. Josh, three point nine. Julia, I cheated. I'll defer. Oh, that's right. Our illustrious guest, Dr. Sponsor. I haven't seen it. I know braceable AIS is about one out of a hundred or so kids. Uh, so I would say uh, having a parent with it 
is going to probably about five or six fold increase your chances of one of those categories of spine deformities. Yeah. So interestingly, um, if you had a twin, it did increase at about sixfold. That odds ratio was 6.25. The parent, uh, those odds ratios were 1.46 or 1.74, depending on whether it was mother or father. If both parents, it increased it to 2.5. So not a huge increase, but significant. They argue that uh, this should be the patients that we selectively screen for scoliosis in countries like our own, um, where maybe our screening is not as locked down. Uh, if you're curious, their rate of total spinal deformity was 2.78%. 2.78% of the population met that criteria that we talked about. So, so um, I think I that's that slightly slightly bigger milestone than uh, getting to 50,000 listens is uh, me actually guessing more accurately than Josh for the first time. <laughs> um, <laughs> next up, a recent uh, JPO article named Treatment of Osteochondral Lesions of the Talus in the Skeletally Immature Population. This was a systematic review out of Amsterdam. I guess my real question here is, is anyone else on this call putting scopes and ankles or should I just cut to the chase? I've done it for trauma. So... They basically looked at several hundred patients with osteochondral lesions of the talus. They found that non-op treatment was successful in only about 40%. They looked at a bunch of different surgical options, as you'd expect, microfracture, retrograde drilling, fixation, oats, and they found the surgical options ranged from about 70 to 100% success. So basically, uh, this was, I think, a, a useful art- article in counseling these patients, and uh, we'll give you some support if you want to suggest surgery sooner rather than waiting. But, you know, that's sort of where the literature has been going with OCDs and the knee, and I think it probably makes sense in this population even more with only 40% of non-op being successful. They showed that the retroarticular drilling had the best clinical outcomes, but you know, the lesions are so different. You can't really recommend one of those versus the other. It's two case by case. But overall, I think just like we've seen in the knee, it's pretty reasonable to tell these patients, uh, especially the older ones, if you've been dealing with with this for a while, we can just pull the trigger on surgery pretty reasonably rather than making you wait three to six months like the traditional thinking and then go to surgery and start the clock all over again. Nice. I'll pick up the next one. I I love this paper because I think it'll have some controversy. So the paper is called Efficacy and Safety of a Sleeper Plate in Temporary Hemiopsiodesis and the Observation of Tethering. It's from the BC Children's Group, uh, EPUB, and JPO. So they did a retrospective review of 25 of their uh, hemiopsiodesis plates around the knee that they uh, removed the metaphyseal screw, um, and they called that a sleeper plate. So if it recurs, you can go back in and put the metaphyseal screw back in and regain your tether. My question for you guys is quite simply, uh, do you think this is a good idea, and do you do this when you're removing plates from kids that still have a decent amount of growth remaining? Josh. I do not do this. I feel like it's easy enough to put a plate on. I don't know that it saves you more than maybe four or five minutes of time to take out one screw and leave the plate there. So no, it's, I've never even, I've heard of it, but never actually ever even considered doing it. Carter? I've always thought it was a cool idea. I haven't had a patient where I, I thought I needed to do it. So I've not done this. I've been open to it, but I feel like you're about to tell me I shouldn't be. Dr. Sponsor, what do you think? I've heard of the concept. I haven't done it. I think uh, I agree with Dr. Holt that it's easy enough to put the whole construct in if you need to. The scar is already there. The uh, incision has been, you know, uh, has been scarred up. So I think that uh, if you want to get the hardware out, take it all out. And if you need to put it back in, not that big of a deal. Julia, you want to comment? 
Yeah. So I've used this technique once and had a good experience with it. That's certainly not enough of an experience to comment on. I have a partner who does it a lot, but I agree. I mean, it's very easy to take them in and put them or take them out and put them back in. Okay. Well, their, their conclusions actually are that they think it's an acceptable treatment strategy, though you still have to be aware of rebound and tethering um, in young patients. It's funny, the data, in my mind, wouldn't make me draw that conclusion. So 52% maintained the correction. They never had to put the screw back in. So it was kind of like, it didn't matter if you did that or not, uh, unless you believe that you should take out all these plates for people hitting skeletal maturity because you don't want to leave it in for the knee surgeon in 60 years. So then it's an extra surgery for those patients. Uh, 36% of their group, they did end up putting the screw back in. Um, and so maybe it benefited them by having a little less of the removal and reinsertion surgery. Um, but then 16% showed some evidence of tethering and they had to take the plate out. And it's actually a little unclear to me as to, uh, it seems like some of them rebounded back and they were okay, but some of them seemed like they had some mechanical axis deviation. So I can only assume that they're going to get osteotomies at some point. So anyway, my conclusion is I just, I don't get it. I'm kind of with, with Josh and Dr. Sponsor on that one, but uh, interesting study. So our last article is from JBJS. Um, It's out of a university you may have heard of called Stanford. The senior authors are two good friends of the podcast, Kevin Shea and Stephen Frick, and it is entitled The Axillary Nerve Danger Zone and Percutaneous Fixation in the Pediatric Shoulder. Um, I thought it was a very cool study. The first thing I'll say is to really wrap your head around it, you need to see the imaging. There's some very simple but helpful diagrams in the article, so it's worth looking at the actual pictures. Um, but I just want to ask you guys, when you do pin fixation of a proximal humerus fracture, do you have a way to decide that you're safe from the axillary nerve? To be frank, I don't have a great one. I just sort of keep in mind that sort of adult rule that says stay five to seven centimeters below the tip of the acromion. And then I basically just start as distal as I think I possibly can with my pins and um, run them up across the physis. But do you guys have any other systems you use? No. I don't, which is why I thought this was a, a nice little paper to file into the back of your brain. Yeah. Yeah. I think the five to seven centimeter rule is good. Most of the time, the incremental amount of growth you have between puberty or juvenile and adulthood isn't that much. So it's going to be pretty close to that number. Uh, and just do it carefully. Stay a bit anterior. I think there was a paper once that talked about the, the hill or valley between the flat part of the physis and the apex of the physis, and you multiply that times three, I think, and that's supposed to be something. Uh, two hills, one valley, I think they call it. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly that's exactly what this is. They looked at that sort of upslope of the physis and called it um, the the mountain. And then if you measure that height of the mountain and you turn it upside down, that's a, a quote unquote valley. So it is um, one mountain or three valleys. So basically the height of that physeal uptick, um, you don't want to be higher than that. And you don't want to be less than three times that far below the physis. So it gives you this sort of range four mountains, so to speak, with one above and three below the physis as your safe zone um, based on MRIs of a bunch of kids. Um, So I thought it was handy. It reminded me of a a CMC, a Carolina's Medical Center paper that I really like and refer to a lot with the distal humerus safe zone for if you're doing, you know, percutaneous lateral fixation, X-fix or pins or cannulated screws, and you want to stay away from the radial nerve. And that paper similarly gave you sort of an anatomically based safe zone rather than just a centimeter based safe zone. 
So I thought this was a cool one just to, to put in the, um, you know, the catalog of things I'll try to look at before those surgeries. One mountain. I remember the mountains and the valleys and how to draw them. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> I got to save that picture from the article and uh, look at it every time, probably. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sponseller. I uh, can't thank you enough for all your tips and tricks and um, discussion. Thank you for all the work you've put into this. Obviously, it's a labor of love, but it makes everything memorable. And I think it's great for uh, the society to, to have this resource for learning. I think we appreciate your kind words and a much bigger thank you to you for all the work you've done with research, driving the field forward and uh, teaching us what we should be doing with our patients. So uh, thank you and uh, really fun to have you on the show. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Good night, everyone.